Hello, I'm Jasmine Bertels and I'm talking to Nick Hubble, who is the editor of the Fortune and Freedom newsletter. And Nick has just created an in-depth report into net zero and the implications of net zero, which it seems that nobody's actually really thought of. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, and worst of all, the government that's committed the UK and also governments around that have committed their various countries haven't figured out how they're actually going to achieve it themselves. So we're not the only ones who haven't thought through this issue. And uh, the problem being that since we've been committed to this, this net zero uh, goal without having figured out how we're going to do it, a bunch of different scientists, geologists, energy experts, all sorts of different people have been crunching the numbers to figure out, well, what does this actually mean? What would it require to reach net zero? What would the implications of reaching net zero be? And the conclusions are uh, a little bit concerning, which is what prompted me to write this report and to make it freely available to people at Fortune and Freedom. Okay, so if you say they're concerning, what, what's the biggest concern, would you say, about net zero? The biggest concern is that if we don't achieve net zero by way of electrifying the economy successfully, which means converting, for example, cars from fossil fuels to batteries, if we don't manage to build a grid, an electricity grid that can sustain the electrification of everything, if we don't produce enough energy using wind and solar and other renewable forms, in other words, if we don't achieve net zero by increasing and, and improving our energy economy, then what are we going to do instead in order to try and reach net zero? And I think the answer is that they're going to be imposing what they will call energy demand management. So I'm talking about climate lockdowns. I'm talking about carbon rationing. I'm talking about 15 minute cities being compulsory and then people being fined for using you know, fossil fuels or energy. Uh, I'm talking about all the dystopian nightmare sort of things that's usually reserved for conspiracy theories because if we're committed to net zero, but we don't know how we're going to achieve it, then the question is, well, how are we going to sort of rebuild or repackage our economy into whatever energy systems can actually realize? Uh, and the real point of the report is that we're not going to reach net zero by you know, doing those things that I said earlier, by improving our energy production, by converting things to renewables, because we can't. It's not possible. And so I'm really worried about what this demand management side is going to mean. Um, for our quality of life. There's an interesting way of thinking about this, which comes from Doomberg. And uh, what that, that group of energy consultants say is that our, our standard of living really can be measured in terms of how much energy we have to waste. Now, that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but if you think about it, everything we do that improves our quality of life, such as, for example, converting milk to cheese, is, is an energy question. Um, Going on a holiday is a question of using energy and everything that we like to do, having lights on, having heating on. It's all about having energy that's freely available, meaning also cheap, in order to convert into what we like and what we want. And so our standard of living is really about that surplus energy being freely available. And what the net zero, issue, uh, what the net zero campaign is really all about, if I'm right about whether we can produce the energy that we need or not, what it's going to be all about is reducing our energy consumption. And that means a lower standard of living. So, as you say, you know, the, the, the point here really is that if they're, if they're really they, whoever it is that's setting up this, the, the big governments, World Economic Forum, UN, who knows, um, if they, they are serious about um, getting to net zero by 2050, then you would expect anybody sensible to create 
the structure to create enough energy through, as you say, um, green methods in order to do that. But if they're if that's not going to happen, and it, I'm, I'm guessing that you're saying it's not going to happen, we, because I mean, we're already seeing that we don't have the capacity to create green energy, even just for this country, let alone the world, then that means that we, the little people, will just be told not to use the energy that we actually need. So ultimately, is that, that the thing? Yeah, although I'm sure we'll be allowed to use the energy that we need as defined by our governments and those international organizations that you mentioned. It's the question of the things we want and our quality of life and our living standards, whether we're allowed to travel outside of our cities, whether we're allowed to go on holiday, what sort of food we eat, how, how warm we keep our homes, these sorts of things. Um, I suspect that as the world realizes that net zero is not achievable at the current level of energy demand, the, the focus will turn to reducing how much energy we demand and thereby how much how much our, our quality of life um, is, is allowed to improve and allowed to, well not even improve I'm worried that they're going to curtail our quality of life and, and that I'm sure that sounds quite extreme but if you look at the people who've crunched the numbers that is the conclusion they get to um, all sorts of different experts are pointing out the fact that un, you know, based on the realities of energy systems we're not going to be able to provide the amount of energy that we have today um, using you know, forms of energy that, net, that are going to comply with net zero. So the implication of, of that is that our energy demand is what's going to have to go, is what's going to have to be cut. Uh, and that, that's my biggest fear. And another thing that comes up in the report is about the resources that are needed the, you know, through the extraction industries, that what we can dig out of the ground, the resources that we've got to create electric batteries, for example, for, for cars. So because there seems to be quite a limit on those as well. Yeah, the importance of this is that it's a hard constraint. So technology won't solve this problem. We know how much we can mine. We know about ore deposits. We know about declining ore grades, for example. So the key hard constraint on net zero, which I've identified, which I don't think we can shift, is the amount of resources it would take in order to create a net zero energy system. Um, by resources, I mean metals. I mean also people who understand how to build things, so electrical uh, experts of various kinds, especially engineers. Um, all of these minerals that are required that are quite rare, such as rare earths, there is going to be a massive shortage of those if we try and attempt to reach net zero. The reason for this is fairly simple. Right now, we burn fuel in order to create energy. That's why you see on, on your news every evening the price of oil, the price of coal will often be quoted. The energy system is reliant on how much fuel we have. But renewables are different. They require a huge upfront cost in terms of resources to build things, such as wind farms and solar panels. But from that point on, the cost is very low because they don't need to be fueled. But at some point, they need to be replaced and also potentially recycled, which means another big increase in the amount of resources needed. The key equation then is how much more resources do you need in order to build a net zero world relative to the one we're currently running on, on fuel? And the answer is that it's an impossible amount. There is not a, a plausible way to create the amount of resources we need in order to create a net zero world. According to these various experts of various different fields who have various different persuasions about the science of climate change, um, that they've all come to that conclusion. 
Uh, and like I said, the governments didn't crunch the numbers on how they'd actually achieved net zero. That's very clear. They literally lost a high court case, which made it obvious that they hadn't figured out how they're going to achieve net zero. But ever since they have committed, people have been crunching the numbers and they've reached this conclusion that, well, the resources don't exist and, and can't possibly be mined in time and efficiently and cost effectively in order to achieve net zero, which means we're going to come up, up against that hard constraint that undermines, ironically enough, net zero um, actually being possible, especially within the timeframes considered. So you mentioned 2050, but there's a few milestones on the way. All of this at a time when the resources industry is being strangled by the same net zero constraints. You know, the, the, they're creating the demand for the resources, but they're also constraining the supply because of course mining is very bad for the environment. Uh, and that's the ultimate disastrous combination. Of course, it's very good for resources investors who believe that net zero will be pursued to some extent. Um, but at some point the world, even if politicians are gonna realize that the resources can't possibly be mined fast enough to reach the commitments the governments have legally made. And that's why we started with this concern about uh, net zero being imposed by way of demand management rather than actually trying to achieve an energy system that can support our standard of living. So it sounds to me like we've got a bit of a fight on our hands. If, if what you're saying is true, if, if governments, not just ours, but governments around the world keep pushing on towards net zero for 2050, um, but then they, they come across these barriers because they realize actually they can't, certainly not in time. That means that there's going to be, as you say, there are going to be even more pushes to have climate lockdowns, going to use 15 minute cities. I assume they'll use our smart meters and smart products to, to stop us. So what can we, the people, do about it? Well, I think there's two possible ways this can go. One is the one we've outlined with this demand management, 15-minute cities being compulsory and, and climate lockdowns and carbon tracking, carbon rationing, that sort of thing. Um, the other option is that they abandon net zero to some extent and return to fossil fuels. We've already seen that happen during the, the energy crisis of the last year, especially in Germany, which returned to coal. Um, so, you know, it's not beyond the realms of, of possibility that they just decide that Net zero is not plausible and we can't continue to pursue it. Um, now that creates an interesting awkward moment for the climate change science side of things because it means they're willing to destroy the planet in order to, to be politically popular, I suppose. Um, but leaving that aside, I think the point is that at some point this realization will strike an even credible analysis from, for example, the International Energy Agency will make it very clear that we're not going to achieve the goals we've set ourselves. And at that point, a decision has to be made. Now, I don't know which way, which one of those two options politicians will choose, uh, but we have seen already some, some political movements go against net zero, especially in the US in certain states that have mining and energy as a key part of their economies. We've seen in the UK lots of protests against this 15-minute city phenomenon, which is exactly the sort of thing I would expect to happen under a net zero world. Um, so the, the, the political change has started already and there's lots of hope about that. And my suggestion would be to support that. But what I want people to really understand is that the, the resources constraint on net zero is a hard constraint that won't change, uh, which means we're not going to reach net zero by way of building a, a renewable energy system. We could reach it by constraining outstanding living or we could abandon it and we've got that choice and if people understand we've got that choice then at least they're making a valid political decision on a national level unlike the one that we've made so far where we committed ourselves to net zero without actually considering what it really means 
Yeah, and because finally, anytime net zero is mentioned, I ask myself, why? You know, and is, is there still a, a question mark over whether it's, it's even relevant to get rid of carbon? Because we're talking about net zero carbon. You know, there, I'm, I'm hearing so many arguments about carbon being needed for plants, for example, and that when the dinosaurs were around, we had high carbon situations. So we had lush vegetation, etc. Are, are the scientists that you're talking to, are they questioning even the need for net zero? One of the interesting things about this is that a, this group of scientists and geologists and economists and so forth and so forth that I've interviewed about this and I'm continuing to, they come from completely different positions about climate change. So, for example, some of them will say, well, net zero as we envision it today is not going to work because of this resources constraint that I've explained, which means we need to come up with something else that's better. Um, and they talk about World War II rationing and they talk about some of the dystopian nightmares that, that I'm worrying about um, and cover in the report. Then there's the people who are climate change skeptics and they say, look, they're not going to achieve this anyway. They're going to have to go back to fossil fuels in the end, which means that's going to be a good investment. Uh, you know, currently, there's a massive underinvestment in oil production in the future because everyone's expecting net zero to be achieved. When it isn't, that means the companies that do have oil production are going to be a good bet. So there's the, the two extremes. Um, if you said to me, or if you were able to convince me that we should reduce our carbon emissions, possibly even to net zero, personally, I would be happy to make a, a sacrifice in order to achieve that. But the way we're doing it right now is, is through a really bad form of deception where we're setting ourselves a legally, a bind, a legally binding goal in the UK at least of achieving net zero when we can't actually do it for fairly simple reasons that have just been assumed away. And we're sort of hiding what the implications of even trying to achieve that are. And that sort of deception is not good for politics. A good way to think about this is what sort of a politician do people have to vote for in order to uh, disagree or campaign against net zero, given that all political parties support it. That's a really concerning thought to me. Um, and, and I don't want politics to take a nasty turn. But right now, the way things are set up, we're sort of pretending uh, and we're using platitudes and, and a good, nice, nice imagination and presumptions and assumptions in order to say we'll, we'll reach net zero. Um, when somebody comes along to say the emperor has no clothes, well, they might not necessarily be the sort of person we want to have uh, you know, holding a lot of power in our country. But if they're the only one saying the emperor has no clothes, then people will support that person. Great. Well, Nick, how do we get hold of this new report? The easiest way is to go to fortuneandfreedom.com uh, and to, to join, which is free, uh, to sign up to the newsletter. And then it'll be uploaded into the free report section of that website, uh, hopefully very soon, as soon as our compliance team has approved it. Actually. Great. Thank you.